Uh, so today we have um, our special guest today is um, a gentleman by the name of Gormy Goes Ke- uh, Keto. Is that how you say it? G- Gormy? Well, yeah, go, that's my my Instagram handle. So right. yeah, my, but, my um, actual name is Mike, Mike but yeah, most people um, know me as Gormy. Right. I had to uh, do some research to find that out. because I was like, I wonder what, I mean, maybe his name, first name is Gormy. I don't know. So I, I, it's I, a play of my last name. It's a play of my last name. I got you. So, so um, I mean, let's talk about why we're, why we're here, why I asked you to be on the podcast. So, you know, I've been doing this, this journey on my own and um, I came across you, I think like a couple months ago, maybe on Instagram and um, I started following your stuff and started liking it. I sent a couple things to uh, Linnea, which is Tony, by the way. And uh, I was just blown away by what you were able to do, man. Like it's amazing. Uh, I appreciate that. It's been a journey is the right word. You know, it's been a, it's, it's been a, a, a road that goes up and down and back and forth and all over the place. But it's, it's definitely, it's, it's been some good stuff. So let me ask you a question. Sure. When did you first notice that you need to start doing something? Like what, how long ago was that? Or what age oh. were you or what have you? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I grew up in a lot of ways. My story is, is typical of, mm-hmm. of some, some heavier folk. Um, I grew up as a fat kid. I, it was, I was put on my first diet when I was 10. Um, I was a little over 200 pounds at that point. And my, that was my, the, my first experience with Weight Watchers was my family talking me into, basically they bribed me to go into Weight Watchers at that point. They were paying me $3 a pound to lose weight. Okay. Um, back then, cause I'm, I'm 48. So I'm a little bit in the, the older range. Um, you weren't allowed to bring kids to Weight Watchers meetings. I'm not sure if they allow it now or not, but at least back then you could not. So basically we did. My aunt, who was the Weight Watchers queen, set it up for me like in a notebook and did all the number crunching and all that kind of stuff. And I was just basically told what to eat, that sort of thing. And that started that kind of conscious relationship with, okay, this is something that people are looking at me for and freaking out about and that sort of thing and created some kind of weird cycles, I think, for me where my weight would go up and down and up and down. And um, I lost a significant amount of weight that on that diet, you know, by um, the time I was heading into seventh grade, I had gone from almost 225 to like 110 pounds. Oh, wow. Um, Damn, that's a lot. And yeah. And then though, by the time I was in high school, you know, the weight had just come back on fast and furiously. Like I, I actually have vivid memories of, they didn't give me any of the money when they paid me to lose weight until after I hit the goal, my goal weight. Mm-hmm. And I think they had this, like a lot of people, they had that conception that when you hit your goal weight, everything's done. Yeah. So they went from watching me like a hawk to not really caring anymore. And I remember taking the money that I was given for losing weight and going to the candy store with it mm-hmm. and like going on like this, like insane candy buying spree because I had this money that I had earned by losing weight. So it was very weird, you know, a little bit of a weird flex back then. Yeah. Um, but I, by the time I was in high school, I was, I was back well over 200 pounds again. Uh, when I was 16, um, I was over 300 pounds. Parents freaked out again, threatened to take my car away if I didn't lose weight. So I did Weight Watchers again. You know, I had this, this cycle of 
losing weight for other people or for reasons that weren't really, you know, motivated internally. So I was good at it, but never really good at keeping it off. So had lost, was, was down under 200 when I graduated high school, went to, high, went to college, immediately was back in college, stayed in that 250, 300 range, mostly I think because of physical activity, not having a car, living on a, going to a big university and having hills to walk all day and all that kind of thing, I think kept my weight down. And then I left college. And from there, like I said, when I graduated, I was around 300 pounds and my heaviest ever, which was about, hmm, let's do some math, probably about 10 years later, uh, was 540 pounds. And at 540, uh, I knew I need, you asked the question, when did I know I need to do something? I mean, I had, I had tried other diets along the way, but my weight just kept going up and kept going up. And when I had reached that peak, I knew at that point that I, I needed to make some change, but it, again, I wish I could say I had this like, you know, eye opening moment where I decided at that point I needed to make change, you know, with purpose and f- fury and all of those great things. Like my decision to lose weight then had more to do with having trouble um, finding work. I knew mm. I had changed my career. I had attempted to a big move. It didn't work out. And it's hard for people to want to hire you when you look like death walking in, you know, just from the parking lot. Yeah. You know, I was, I was so heavy that at that point, you know, I could barely, I, I reached points where I was barely shopping in stores uh, because, and this was back before grocery delivery was a huge thing. Right. I was, you know, a pioneer of that service. Um, and so I, that was when I just, <clears throat> excuse me, I discovered the paleo diet. I learned a lot about kind of, nutrient density and ingredients and all of that great information. But again, I was, I was chasing the scale because I wanted to, you know, fit into the world. You know, I wanted to be able to find work. I wanted to be able to move better, all of those things. And so I went from 540 to 210 pounds. Um, and that took about three years, two and a half, three years. And I got to 210 pounds. It was May of 2013. It was my, the year of my 40th birthday in late April. And I had made all these, these changes, but hadn't really done any work on my head. And basically from May of 2013 to October of 2013, I went from 210 back up to the high 400s. Um, I put on 270 pounds in just under six months um, because of my food addiction and those issues. And I never really did anything to change my mindset or you know, decide why I wanted to lose weight. I was, I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. And that came back to to basically kind of slap me in the face. And I put all that weight back on and basically decided that was what my life was going to be, you know, that I was going to just die overweight and there was nothing I could do. And I, I could see health, health problems mounting. If you, you pulled up a, a Google sheet, you know, a Google list of what are the symptoms of type two diabetes? I had every one of them. Um, I could, you know, getting dizzy after eating, sweating a lot, peeing all the time, all of those things, neuropathy in my feet. And I knew I was going to have to do something or just accept what was going to happen. And had some family situations happen where I realized that they needed me around and I wasn't going to be around in a couple of years if I didn't make changes. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, it wasn't another external motivator. It was, I realized that I had a reason to live besides eating, 
You know, I had a reason to live besides just this gluttonous existence that I had built for myself. Like I had purpose and I, I realized that I wanted to fight to live and I knew it was going to be a fight to do it. And I had to do it, approach it differently. And basically, you know, keep my head in the game, you know, to put it a better way, I guess, instead of just, just chasing numbers and just eating what I need to do to make the scale move. I had to be conscious of how I was feeling, how the food was making me feel and what were the challenges and the emotions and all of those different things that come up when you go through this kind of transformation. And that was, that started in February of 2017. And, um, I lost, that was when I also, I, I feel like I'm cramming a lot of information in here. So tell no, me you're if good, I'm, I'm rambling, no, this is but good. It was 2017. Like I said, I came originally that first massive loss was through paleo. So I feel like when you're overweight, you, you keep an ear to the weight loss community. Like what are the trends? What are people doing? And I had heard the keto word pop up a lot. Um, did some, so a little bit of researching. I actually, it's funny. I had bought a couple of books about keto late 2016 and never read them. Just kind of bought them for the state, you know, it's one of those things. I think we do this a lot in our lives. We we do things because we feel like it's actually an action we're taking when it really isn't something like someone high, you know, someone who gets a gym membership and never goes to the gym, that sort of thing. Yeah, I bought the keto books, and I don't know if I magically thought something was going to happen or not, but I decided one weekend to read them, and I liked what I read, and decided that keto was going to be the the tool I needed, and set off with purpose and kind of had my why in focus. You know that that battle to live. And it was February of, of 2017. Um, and from there, I lost well over with keto, lost over 200 pounds again. Um, you know, getting down to that point of being down 300 pounds from my heaviest again. Um, learned a lot about myself and nutrition and what my body responds to and what my body doesn't respond to. You know, what, what drives me, you know, what's there. You know, what are the things that are important to me? You know, what are the things that I need to prioritize? Like, I think that mindfulness was probably a, a bigger part of my journey this time than it was the last time. And that kind of got me going on that that place. And, you know, the, the, the Gourmet nickname actually is related to a lot of this because um, my Instagram handle originally wasn't uh, Gourmet Goes Keto. It was Gourmandizer because it's a play on my last name. And the word Gourmandize, which is to eat voraciously. Mm. And my Instagram was just food pictures and pictures of me with food and sharing all these like massive food challenges I would do and things along those lines. And basically um, a very kind of fat positive space, you know, on the, on the internet. And when I decided to make changes uh, you know, I was very, very much a reactionary person. Like if you don't, you don't like me, that's not my problem kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it was like, let me, you know, I also for most of my life lived that place of, let me make the fat joke before someone else can. Um, and, you know, it just, in a lot of ways, you'll learn how to disarm people with that. And I decided to not start a new account, but just to change the name of my account. And that's where Gourmet Goes Keto came from. Uh, that page actually got deleted a year ago by Instagram. They say it was accidental. Um, it was around the time that they purged a lot of health-based accounts. Um, I actually had a, a much more significant following than I do now on this new account that I've been building for the past year. Um, but cause it, so it used to be when people would ask like, what was my life like before I started losing weight? I could just tell them to scroll back on my Instagram and nine times out of 10, they wouldn't pay attention to that. But every so often someone would, and they're like, 
you weren't kidding. Like you used to post some crazy crap on here. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I told you that. Yeah. So now it makes me sad that that's all gone. Like, cause I had that Instagram account for, I don't you know, six years and more than half of it wasn't weight loss, you know, wasn't, wasn't during my weight loss time. So it was a nice record of, of my life. And I kind of came through though, you know, start another page, keep, keep that, you know, keep my, my journey out there. It's a, a tool for me as much as it is for helping other people. And my journey changed and evolved in a lot of ways. You know, I think it's one of the things with keto is if you Google how to do keto, you're going to get a million answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried probably almost half those different, those varieties, you know, it, that, that evolved for me a lot over time. Eventually worked with a coach who eventually invited me to become a coach working for him, um, which is something I do now helping people. And so it's, it's kind of gotten me to where I am today. Um, do you think they delete, I'm sorry, do you think Instagram deleted your account because they were like, well, this is, we're not going to go scroll through all these posts. This might not be factual information for people. Like, I don't know, to be honest with you, like, um, they, my account, uh, uh, several other prominent keto accounts and even some keto product accounts were deleted at the same time. Mm, um, it's and, probably just the, the, it's like a bot probably. It's probably not like yeah. actually a person going through and doing it. Well, it, it, oh, there's, okay. you know, there was rumors of like, um, that we were being targeted with mass reporting, you know, that people were targeting keto accounts, mm. um, you know, which tends to happen at times, basically, Long story short with it, Instagram, the response I eventually got from Instagram several months later was my account was deleted by mistake, but they can't recover it. That's ridiculous. Um, Yeah. Um, Well, also during that, this is, this is the wrinkle, the added wrinkle that comes into all of that. You know, I know we're, we're talking about weight loss, but this is a whole different level of, of, you know, conspiracy theory. Um, I had several, several people from who say that they were connected to Instagram, reach out to me and say for certain amounts of money they could get my page restored Damn. um whether they were claiming to be yeah actually one one person who i spoke to actually was an instagram employee because he's a friend of a friend mm-hmm. and he said he would do it but he wanted a significant amount of money to do it and then i actually started getting emails from other people um basically asking like a for, ransom uh, yeah basically asking for over five you know the minimum that i that was requested of me was five thousand dollars the maximum that i saw was ten um, and my question one, I don't have that kind of money, you know, yeah. that's not who I am as a person, but, um, the question I would always ask was, so what's to prevent me from getting killed that, you know, that account getting killed the next day, yeah. you restore it. True. And the, their responses were always, well, there's no guarantee. <laughs> oh, well, and I'm yeah, like, so you want me 10, to 000. give you, you want me <laughs> to give you a couple thousand dollars for you to turn my account back on. And then you could turn it back off and I'd have no way of knowing that like, yeah. okay, no, thanks. Like. I'll I'll strike out on my own again and start over. Oh, something interesting you said earlier, because um, Raul has mentioned this to me before, because Raul's kind of gone up and down too mm-hmm. with his weight over the years, and he said that he used to do the same thing when you mentioned like make the joke before anybody else would make the joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's funny when you say it, right? Because oh yeah, like when we say it. Oh okay, but like you don't want somebody you're really not friends with making fun of you, and then everybody laughs. When you oh, yeah. say it, it's like funny and your friend's like, oh, shut the fuck up. Like, but like if some stranger or someone like you're only like a friend of a friend, you know, says it, it's like different. It kind of hurts then. Yeah, it, it hits you different. And and I mean, honestly, like I, I like built my identity around it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that was who I was. I was the guy that was going to make the fat joke. 
I was going to in pub, you know, I, I was, you know, as much as I ate behind closed doors, I ate as much publicly. Like, you know, I was known for, you know, I, at one point it had people paying me to drink gravy because they thought it was funny. Wow. Like, you know, cause I came upon the, it's a, when I worked at a college, it was a group of, of college wrestlers. Um, and they were trying to, to bet each other who would chug a quart of, uh, what is the, the place that does it's, it's not KFC or Popeye's. It was the plate, the other, another chicken chain. Um, it was a quarter gravy and they're like betting each other that no one will chug it. And I come in and I'm like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, Oh, we're trying to get someone to chug this gravy. And I'm like, well, what's, what's the pot at at this point? And they're like 20 bucks. And so I said, 20 bucks in a pizza and I'll, I'll chug the gravy. <laughs> so I literally had this group of people standing around me, you know, chanting chug while I was, I chugged a quarter gravy. No big deal. Like that was who I, that was something no one batted an eye at when I did it because that was what I was known for. Yeah. You know, like that was my, that was my thing. Like the, I was the person that, you know, would show up to somewhere and be like, you know, kind of make fun of the fact that I knew if I sat in any of the chairs, they were going to go to the ground. Mm. You know, I had a, I had a, I had a, a good friend who his favorite thing to do when we went to like barbecues at people's houses was try to convince me to sit in one of those plastic lawn chairs that I was offered just to show the person the mistake they were making, offering me a plastic lawn chair. Yeah. Um, you know, like you, you get good at deflecting things and, and it wasn't because I was hiding, you know, and, and again, like sometimes people, you know, people will tell stories like that and be like an inside, you know, I would go home at night and I would cry into my, my ice cream. I wasn't going home and crying. You know, I enjoyed the life I was living. Like, you know, I didn't like, you know, of course there, there was pain and there was a lot of challenges and all of those things, but I was so driven by that addiction to food and, and the pleasure I got from it, that, that it wasn't something that I saw as like a, a, a facade of covering up a depression. It was more like, okay, this is who I am. This is what I built this life around. You know, I, when I was a, a little kid, I was the kid, the fat kid wearing a t-shirt in the pool. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as I was a teenager, I was like, this is dumb. Why am I doing this? Like if anyone has a problem with me being at a, you know, at a pool or a lake or whatever with the shirt off, that's their problem. It's not my problem. Yeah. You know, that was very much kind of that attitude in my life. Like this is never, if I went to an amusement park and couldn't get on a ride, it was never about, should I, should I think twice about why I don't fit on this amusement park ride? It was more like, well, screw them. You know, that's their, they built that ride wrong, yeah. you know, was, was the attitude. Huh. I, I listened to the podcast you did with, um, obese to beast. Mm -hmm. And I really, you know, that, that's a, that's a good name because dude, you were a big dude, you know, when you were 540 pounds, like, mm -hmm. and I was a big dude at 354 or something like that, Tony, mm -hmm. you know, like, and now, and I see your pictures. I'm looking at your thumbnail right now on the, on the zoom. Like, you know, you're, if someone hasn't seen you in 10 years, they're gonna be like, dang. And then you're like, Hey, it's me. And they're, like, oh, yeah. they're going to be blown away. Oh, dang. I didn't even recognize you, man. But, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> on that podcast, you said something about, um, how you gained that 270 pounds back in mm -hmm. um, six months. Can you tell us about mm -hmm. that and what triggered it? Yeah. Um, so basically, like I said, you know, I had gotten down, I, I had that goal of getting to 210 by my 40th birthday. I hit that goal. I went on a vacation actually out here to San Diego. Um, and we went to Disneyland and did, I did like two weeks out here as like a, you know, 40th birthday gift to myself. And I stayed really, I was good. You know, I was not really kind of cheating on my diet. Like I was staying with the plan that I had in place. Like I, even at, at, even at the parks, you know, at Disney, I was like eating the thing, you know, eating 
you know, staying paleo, eating cleaner, like all of these things. And it felt like, oh, you know, I, I'm so proud of myself. Like, look what yeah. I did. You know, I, I complete, I did this, you know, I did this and I stayed on track. That's awesome. And I got to the airport and I honestly don't even, it's, it's almost like you don't know what flips that switch, but I was at the airport and I was buying a couple magazines um, at, at the, that same convenience store they have at every airport across the country. Um, and I was like, you know what, you, you would, you were so good on, on this trip, you know, you deserve a treat here at the airport. So I bought, um, those combos, which are the cheese stuffed pretzels oh, yeah. and a bag of Reese's peanut butter cups, which hadn't had Reese's peanut butter cups, which are, were, you know, long time before and after during diets, my favorite food on the planet ha- probably hadn't had one in at least two years and decided I was going to have some Reese's peanut butter cups. And so I ate those and in my head, for some reason, I thought that was going to be like this one snack on this, this traveling, this traveling day. By the time I reached my layover in Baltimore, flying from San Diego to Baltimore, then back to Providence, um, I was like, oh, there's an Arby's at this airport. I haven't had Arby's in years. And I used to love the beef and cheddar. You know, let's just let this kind of cheat happen. It can only happen at the airport. You're going to do this. So I loaded up on Arby's at the airport. Got home that night. Now you have to realize, so paleo for people that don't know, um, is no grains, no processed foods, none of that. You know, you might have some sweet potato, especially, you know, now if you look at paleo, people are eating white potatoes, sweet potatoes and all that. But back then it was more, you could eat sweet potato, not white potato. And so I had French fries and beef and cheddars with rolls and all of this food that had been in my body for years. And when you take wheat out of the body for a long time and then throw it back in, you're sensitive to it. So I woke up the next day feeling like garbage. Like I had the flu, went to work. My boss actually sent me home sick. He's like, you need to go home and get some sleep. And on the way home, I stopped at Whole Foods to get some chicken and broccoli. Cause that's what you do when you're a, a, a behaving healthy person. And for some reason had it in my head. I'm like, you know what, you know, you've, you've been so good for so long. Why don't you just, you know, take a cheat, have a cheat meal. You know, you started that at the airport, you know, let's just get it out of your system, which I think is a phrase a lot of people can probably relate to, especially people that have dieted, you know, that whole idea of getting something out of your system, which never seems to happen. And that sparked off this kind of weekend of debauchery when it came to food that, you know, I think from Friday morning weigh in to Monday morning weigh in, I put on 30 pounds, um, which your body can't put on 30 pounds of fat in three days. That's not possible. Um, So clearly my body was holding a ton of water. Um, And, but by the time that weekend was over, I had talked myself into the meal becoming a day, the day becoming a weekend, the weekend becoming a week. And by the middle of that week, I had convinced myself that I had been so miserable trying to lose weight that that wasn't what I was meant to do. And I should just eat what I wanted to eat. And I had a couple of things in my mind where I'm like, well, let's, you know, take a week off and then you'll go back to like being paleo Monday through Friday and you'll eat whatever you want to eat on the weekends and all of these great plans, you know, and they, they always, you know, that phrase, you know, about best laid plans. Uh, I flew completely off the rails. You know, I was eating (laughs) that summer. It was pretty much any moment I was awake, I was eating, you know, like I I tracked it once and was topping well over 20,000 calories a day um, with the amount of food I was eating. And it's one of those things where people say, you know, you don't lose the weight overnight. You can't put it back on overnight in a lot of ways. Like I blinked that year 
and was right back where I started. And the only reason I didn't get back to my heaviest weight ever was because my body pushed back. And when you have out of control blood sugar, specifically heading into the diabetic range, you actually lose, can lose weight when you're overeating because mm. your body is just dumping the sugar, you know, just can't handle it and just dumping the carbohydrates. And so my body would stay in that range where I got back up to the high 400s and not get heavier, even though I was still eating massive amounts of food that probably could have kept my weight going. Were you, um, when you got back up to, you said 480? Mm-hmm. Okay, when you got back up to 480, were you like, man, what the, uh, you know, were you just mm-hmm. like, were you just like pissed off at yourself? Uh, I was like, when you lived that life for so long, it's, it's comfortable and that's your normal. So in a lot of ways, it wasn't necessarily that I was pissed off. It was like, I just accepted, okay, another diet failed. You tried, you did your best. It wasn't meant to happen. Like, I think you get really good at kind of convincing yourself of things to make things okay. Um, I think the, the only moment that I feel like I, even at any point was angry with myself was probably the, when the first hundred pounds came back on, which happened very within a month, I put a hundred pounds on and it went from anger to what's the best way to describe it from anger to this is, this is happening. And I can't, you know, almost like you're on a runaway train at that point, like, you know what's happening, but you don't feel like you're in control of it. So it's like on autopilot. Yeah. Like, and it really, it, you get like, they've done studies on this, like the, the way that, you know, there are different foods that hit your brain the same way drugs do. Mm -hmm. Like I was like an addict on a bender. Like Mm -hmm. I was fulfilling every whim. There was no craving left on, you know, no stone left unturned when it came to cravings or foods that I wanted um, and amounts that I wanted. And you know, it was, it, it became like a party. And because I had been there before, it wasn't like, oh, I should be, I'm, I'm terrified of this. It was like, oh, this is just my life going back to where it was. And, you know, I, I had, like I said, I had done really no work on the, on the mind side of things. So I didn't know what life, how to live life at 200 pounds, you know, in the 200 pound range. Like I didn't know who that person was, where to, where I could derive joy, where, you know, how I could handle being upset, any of those things. Like, the only way I knew how to handle anything in my life was with food. And so it was very easy to turn back to it. So did you grow up like, did your family, were they overweight too? Um, slightly, not to the extent that I was, uh-huh. um, you know, I think there was, there's always, you know, I had, you know, several, several relatives that probably were in that hundred to 150 pounds overweight range. Like I said, I have an aunt that was the, the queen of Weight Watchers. You know, my dad always kind of struggled with like 40 pounds, uh, that sort of thing, but not to the extent that I was. Did your family, like whenever you wanted something, did they just give it to you? Would you say they were kind of enablers? Well, I I think obviously to some extent when I was really young, yes, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, when you're eight years old, you know, nine years old, 10 years old and 200 pounds, like you're not. Oh, you're not going out and buying all that food on your own. Yeah. But I will say like when I was 11 and 12, I was, you know, mm-hmm. I was taking my paper route money and going to the convenience store. And like I again, with my age, you know, we had such things as penny candy stores where there was a whole counter with a hundred different kinds of little candies. And each one was a penny and you could fill up a bag, you know, yeah. for pretty cheap. You know, I would on Saturdays, I would walk 
to the penny candy store, the comic book store, and then take my haul to McDonald's and get food. And this was all doing this alone. And at that point, my family just thought I was walking to the comic book store. Like, you know, you get, but what, what I will say happened was, you know, it was also around that time that I was, when I was losing that weight, that my parents divorced. Oh, okay. My parents didn't only divorce. We ended up having to move back in with my grandparents, my mom, my sister, and I moved in with my grandparents at that time. My great grandmother had just been moved into that house as well because she was take she had taken ill. So there was a lot going on in the family uh-huh. and not a lot of pe- attention being paid to us as kids. Yeah. So there was a lot of me providing for, you know, kind of being able to sneak food and things along those lines. And when we moved out of that house and it was me, my mom and my sister, my sister was very involved with athletics. My mom was working two jobs to pay for everything. And I had a lot of, you know, I had a job that was great and I had access to food. And so it was very much, you know, kind of providing it on my own. And, you know, I don't think, I don't necessarily see my family as they were enabling behavior. I think it was more, they didn't know what to do mm. because they would try, you know, the, the, the fear, the fear tactics. Like, like I don't think anyone teaches parents or families how to handle these issues with children. Yeah. You know, especially when those children are 16, 17, 18, you know, and beyond. And so I don't think they knew what to do. You know, I think it was more of, of a helplessness place than a enabling, if that makes sense. I, so did you like have like, uh, like growing up as far as like relationships goes, how did that go with you? Uh, and that's one of the things like for me, like it was, I was always like the, the shy overweight kid, the funny guy, you know, it was never something where I was pursuing things uh-huh. because I think in a lot of ways, like I was so, I, I had gotten so overweight so fast that I missed some of those steps develop. Like when I look at it now, even psychologically, like developmentally, like I never felt like I was missing out on anything. Like, you know, I had some, I had some dates, you know, here and there and that sort of thing, like things you do to kind of keep up appearances, but never anything that I felt like, Oh, I'm missing something because I wasn't really kind of create, like I filled that emotional hole in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I think it affected, you know, my development. There were times as, you know, as an adult, you know, getting into relationships that worked or didn't work like short term, nothing long term, nothing beyond, you know, dating and things along those lines, just because it was, it was never a priority for me. You know, for me, food was always the priority. Like, you know, as, as sad as that sounds, like that's something I can be very cognizant of, you know, at this point in my life. Yeah. Did you not like try to date anybody because you're overweight? Yeah. I, I, you didn't want to, you know, you don't understand the question. Cause that was me. Yeah, no, I get it. Like I, I, it, it was very much like I would talk, you know, I would talk to people about like crushes and things along those lines, but I never had that. Like I never, I, you know, I would never take it beyond anything. Like, you know, there were times where I'd ask people to dance. You know, the, again, I feel like I'm like 800 years old. I would ask people to old timey <laughs> yeah. dances. Come um, on, man. You're eight years older yeah. than us, man. <laughs> or seven. I know, I know, I know, but still, I feel that way sometimes. But I think it was something that just, I never made up, you know, I, I, and I honestly, like I, I, if I had to kind of even break it down scientifically for myself, like I honestly think that there were things that affected like my development in terms of hormonal development, you know, in terms of, you know, testosterone and and male hormones and things along those lines in terms of drive. Like it never felt like something I was missing. It was just always, Oh yeah. You know, if I can find someone that it would be cool to hook up with for a little while, that's great. But if it doesn't work out, I'm also okay with that. Yeah. Like it was never something that I felt like I sought after. I felt was missing. Hmm. 
Um, I saw that, uh, sorry, I saw today that yeah. on your Instagram, you posted something about 600 pound, the TLC show. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you apply for that at one time? Oh, no, 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 it's not me. Oh, um, okay. So my podcast, the Fat Guy Forum, is where I share uh, stories of men who have been either starting, ending all different phases of, of weight loss journeys who struggle with weight, you know, have been fat guys. Um, I created it because... In the podcasting space, I saw podcasts that were directed at women, and I saw podcasts that were directed at men that were pretty much already athletes or fit, and their weight loss stories were about 20 pounds and because they had a bad off-season, and I wanted to give a space like for normal guys to tell their stories, and so I've been doing that for over two years now, and the guest who's coming on the show this week um, was on My 600-Pound Life. Oh, wow. So we have a, we have a pretty That's in-depth cool. discussion about like what that experience was like, what it was like to apply for the show, but also what the reality of the show was like. And, you know, it's, it's a cool kind of look behind the curtain. You know, he's a, he's a big fan of Dr. Now, like man, talks about him being like, <laughs> him being a great guy. Like he's a genuinely caring, great guy. Who's Dr. He now? Also, he's what? the doctor that goes, you know why, you know, this is how he sounds. So he's mm. like, you know why you didn't lose any weight? You eat too much. Mm. Mm. You need yeah, to tell it. A, and then he's looking at your mom. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. And then he's looking at his, the mom or dad who are parents who are in the room with the kid or, you know, it's not an adult. You must say no to him. He's too, he like, he's too big. He's too fat. Like, it, dude, it's, I'm like, dang, man, this guy's mean to these people. He's straight. He's a straight talk. He, he doesn't pull any punches. Like, but he, look who he's talking to. He's talking to people that haven't left the house in years. Yeah. Like the guy who, the guy who's on my podcast, he, was 700 you know as almost 700 pounds that is or actually probably was 700 pounds at his heaviest wow because the scale couldn't read him for a while the 700 pound scale he had um and he didn't leave he hadn't left his house in a long time when he traveled there to go on the show like you know there's there's reasons there's there's some critical stuff going on there but yeah no we get to have a nice a really great kind of in-depth discussion about what it's like to put yourself out there that way not just not just, you know, do things like myself or you guys like sharing journeys on Instagram or on the social media, like to put it out on television yeah, and, and go through that experience. It's kind of wild. So what would you say to somebody that has never experienced like a weight gain like you mm-hmm. have had? Say to them about what? Um, like what it's like? Or? Well, because, you know, like everybody generally has like their preconceived ideas yeah. of the person. Oh, he's just lazy or yeah, you know, like, he's, just, he's yeah. fat, you know, stuff like that. Because I, I like I found out like uh, what's that guy? Drew Manning is that fit to mm-hmm. fat guy. He yeah. gained the weight to try to see. Obviously, he didn't gain like hundreds, hundreds of pounds. Of yeah. yeah. But uh, like, I just don't understand. Like. Like, what's the mindset, I guess, mm-hmm. of somebody that. Yeah was as big as you were at one time. I think that's a good question. And it's interesting that you bring up Drew because I have, I respect what he does, but I, I, I don't think even doing what he does, he ever actually learns what it's like to be someone that's significantly overweight. Yeah. Like I would love to, I would love to see him put the weight on and keep it on for a year mm. and then try to lose the weight yeah. or keep it on for two years and try to lose the weight and see what that's like. Not a couple months. Yeah. Uh, but that's a, that's a whole nother discussion we can have. Um, but I, I think like going back to your question, like, what do I tell someone? Like, I think one, every person that is, that is, that is, you know, if you know someone who's 400, 500, 600 or more pounds, they know they're overweight. Yeah. They know, they know that you're eyeing them when they come over to your house and you're going to go sit on their new couch that you're, you're, you're nervous as well. They know 
Like, so don't, you don't have to act like it's the, you know, for lack of a better term, the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's something they're conscious of, but understand that like, and one of the things that I've really learned, you know, through my own experience and then through my experience working with people as a coach and then also through the podcast is like, we may all end up at the same weight, but a lot of, there are a lot of different paths that can get you to 500 pounds. You know, there are people that get to 500 pounds or 400 pounds or 300 pounds through just poor eating habits and lack of information and not knowing what they should be doing. Yeah. And there are people like me who knew everything about nutrition and were so wrapped up in food that, you know, I got my, you know, that's where I got myself to anyway. You know, I was so wrapped up in the pleasure of food that that was the life that I was living. Um, and realize that, you know, a person that is, is living at that size, life is challenging, you know, getting out of it's, it's one of those things where like you think about this, like when you're getting ready to go to work in the morning and you take a shower and you dry off and get dressed and go to work. Think about the fact that when you're someone that who's that big, that act of showering can be as exhausting as going to the gym for an hour. So I, there were many times I would get out of the shower and have to sit in front of an air conditioner to calm down and stop sweating after showering. Wow. Like, you know, so it's almost like, do I need to shower again from the amount of sweating I was doing after showering? Yeah. Um, you know, I, in some early episodes of my, I have an episode of my podcast, I call my 540 pound life. Cause I talk about what life is like at 540 pounds. And that's one of the things I like about my podcast. But in, when I get to share my story is talk about what life is really like at that size, what it's like when you're outgrowing your car, you know, it's not just about pants don't fit anymore. It's not just about, I need to go get a new shirt to wear a wedding. You know, it's, it's about, you know, when I was at my heaviest, I was too big for clothes. They sold at the DXL or casual mail XL as it was known then, which is like really the only major retailer that carries men's clothing in that size. There are some stores now that carry similar sizes, but at that point, casual mail XL was the only one. And I was outgrowing the big and tall store. So the only place I could get clothing was online through a website called kingsize.com. And it would take them weeks to ship you the clothes. And every item of clothing was inconsistently sized. So it was like a crapshoot as to whether the clothes were going to fit when they arrived. So if I had an ex- a time where I needed, you know, dressier clothes or something, it didn't have anything that fit. There was just no way for me to make that happen. Yeah. So there were many weddings I went to wearing, you know, an overstretched polo because I didn't have time to get a button down shirt. You know, the idea that, you know, I, and again, I talk about these things because I want people to know they're not alone. And, it, but on some levels, it's like, okay, let me, let's, let's talk about this again. But, you know, when I was at my heaviest, I had trouble wiping my butt, like cleaning myself when I went to the bathroom was a challenge. You know, I would use kitchen spoons wrapped in toilet paper to reach like, wow there's adaptations that you, but that to me speaks to the resilience of the human mind. Like I was willing to adapt and do that. And it wasn't, I didn't scream, holy crap. I need to do, you know, I need to lock myself in a room and and change this. You know, I need to commit myself to a hospital. Like I need to do something. Instead I was like, Oh, I can make this work this way. You know, I can buy a tool that helps me put my, you know, I can buy bigger socks. I can buy a tool that helps me put my shoes on. Like there's things, you know, I can get a, I can get a bench for my shower. Like, you adapt, you know, you, when that's your normal and you're so wrapped up in that life that you adapt and you know, there are places you can and can't go to, you know, you get really good at scouting out new locations when your friends want to go to a new restaurant. Cause usually if they're inviting me out, they were inviting me out for food and I, I would call ahead and find out what the seating was like, 
So I would know if I'd be able to fit in the chairs at the restaurant. If I knew I was going to be able to, how far of a walk was it in from the parking lot? Like I had movie theaters that I stopped going to because getting from my car to where you'd sit in the movie theater was too far for me to walk. Yeah. Or this was before most movie theaters had chairs with arms that moved. I knew I didn't fit into the theater, the seats at that theater. I knew I wouldn't fit into the chairs in that location, that sort of thing. Like you, these are all the, this is all the stuff that has to take up mental space in your head when you're that big. So why you don't automatically think about other things, you know, sometimes comes into play because you're so busy just making sure you get through the day so you can get home safe. Man. Damn. Yeah. I never even thought about like the car. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like you think about the clothes, obviously, but I, I didn't right. take in consideration like your car. You're going to outgrow your car. Like, do you ever have problems getting on planes as far as like oh, yeah. seats? So here, like, here's one of the things like for me where, where sometimes some people don't like when I, when I say this, but I feel like if you need two seats on an airplane, you should pay for two seats on an airplane. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that I very early on figured out was the way that Southwest is the only airline that actually has a, a, a kind of a fat friendly policy at all uh-huh. uh, where they will refund the second seat or they actually will give it to you free if it's available on your, on the flight. If, when you just show up to the airport, um, one of the things that they do sometimes though, when they, when you ask for that second seat at the airport and you haven't booked it in advance is they will bump someone from your flight to give you that seat. Oh, if you wow. Book your really? ticket first. So personally, I never liked the idea of me affecting someone else's travel. Like I just was never my thing. So I would always book two plane seats and knew that I could get a plane seat refunded. Um, but I often, you know, I was to a point at my heaviest where the two plane seats was snug and one, one seatbelt extender was just barely fitting. And for most airlines, if you need more than one seatbelt extender, you're not flying. Um, I remember us. Go ahead. You want to go ahead, Tony? Did you ever have like where you saw people looking at you and be like, please, I hope he's not sitting by me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That And that was the great thing about the, it. It was a couple years in. But Southwest, after they figured out they needed this customer size policy, they created this little sign that you would put on the seat next to you that says this seat is paid for. Because, you know, on if you've ever flown Southwest, it's like a cattle call of people just scrambling to get seats and they want the good seats. And mm-hmm. when you have two seats, they allow you to board early. Um, you board with all the, the older people and people with physical challenges and things along those lines and small, you know, even families with small children board after you. Um, Cause you need to make sure that you can get two seats near each other. Cause they're not going to help you if one seats at the front of the plane and one seats at the back of the plane. Yeah. Um, so they give you a little piece of paper to put on the seat next to you. Um, you know, letting people know that you paid for that seat basically. Uh, but, Oh Yeah. When you're getting on that plane and you can see the looks, the, the looks of terror on someone's face, like, is he going to be sitting near me? Like, you know, and again, that would be another opportunity for me to make a joke. You know, don't worry. I'm not sitting near you. Like if I really saw someone sweating it, it would be like, don't worry. It's not me. I'm not your, I'm not your seatmate. Don't worry about it. So I remember one time we were coming back home from a trip mm-hmm. and um, my friend that's was a bigger dude. He didn't want to go ask the people at the counter at Southwest. And I was like, well, dude, what are you going to do, man? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I don't, I don't want to say anything. So I went up there and talked to him. And they're like, yeah, sure. We can, I think we could probably make it work. And see, I wondered how they did that because the flight was sold out. Mm. Like it was, it was completely booked. And then when you just said they, they usually bump, ask somebody to give them money or something, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Like instead of making a big scene about it, they just helped them out. And that was, you know, really nice of them. Well, and that's, it, it's one of the, I have a, I have a very vivid memory of, you know, cause the other thing that you have to think about too, is getting through the airport. So I also used to need, 
someone to push me in a wheelchair through bigger airports because there was no way I could walk through the airport. So I got good at tipping, you know, these poor people that were having to push me uh, around the airport. But I remember one time I was at the check-in counter um, at the, uh, you know, the outside of the airport getting for Southwest. And there were two larger women in line in front of me. And every one of them, the poor, the poor attendant had to have the discussion of, well, because they're supposed to, if they think you're going to need more than one seat, talk to you about it like they're required to. And so they, this poor woman had to have this discussion twice and got screamed at twice, you know, and one of the women eventually had, you know, one of the women eventually assented, you know, agreed, okay, I'll take the second seat. The other woman ended up having another attendant from Southwest, basically escorting her to a plane to see whether she could fit or not, if she needed second seat. Um, so you can see the exhaustion on this woman's face. And then I come up next, like literally third, second in a row, someone dealing with, you know, having to deal with this. So immediately I'm like, I already have two seats purchased. Don't worry about it. And you could see the sense of relief on her face. Like she literally like let out a little, thank God. Yeah. Because you know that it's, it's an awkward situation where that person has to be like, I'm really sorry, but I think you're going to need more than one seat. Like, because there is no regulation across the industry. There is no, you know, regulation to seating size and where you're going to fit on one plane or not on another, like all of those things. And, you know, how do you talk to someone where you have to say to them, like in front of their whole traveling party, I think you might need two seats. Like, so that's why for me, it was always take care of it in advance. And honestly, now that I can fit in one plane seat, it's almost a letdown not having two seats. Like not, <laughs> I don't have the second, you know, the second under seat to throw more stuff, you know, to get my carry on under and stretch my legs out and all of that. Like it's a, it's a different experience flying now, but yeah, no, like it, it, I mean, I look at like, I, I love Disney. I love the Disney parks. Like, but at my heaviest, I was renting scooters to get around the parks. Cause there's no way I could walk, you know, 15 miles in a day. So I would rent a heavy duty scooter and, you know, all of the, the challenges that come with, with that. And I remember I, I broke a toilet seat off the wall at uh, Epcot once, like literally the toilet crashed to the ground. Cause it was one of those floating toilets Oh yeah, and crashed to the ground and water was pouring everywhere. And I was the only person in the bathroom at the time. And I immediately went out and got someone. I said, I think there's a toilet broken in that bathroom. <laughs> I would and do the same thing. Two days later, I'm back in that park. And the, that bathroom is still taped off is out of order. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I know why that's still not, not fixed. I understand what's going on there. What kind of emotional toll did your weight gain bring on you? Well, it, it's funny because like one of the things that was, was really interesting to me that I learned along the way is I never identified as an emotional eater. Mm-hmm. Like I used to never say like when people would ask, would, you know, point blank ask me that question, I would say, no, what are you talking about? Like, that's not what, it, what I do. What I eventually realized though, this time around is I, I was an emotional eater, but I wasn't a reactionary emotional eater. I just basically was killing my emotions 24 seven with food. You know, like I never allowed myself to kind of get to that point of having the strong emotions because I was just constantly kind of stuffing it down. And so now, like one of the things that happened, like, especially in the, you know, for the past, like two years, I would say like of this point on my journey, like I have moments where I can get really angry. I can get really emotional, like things. And like, when I talk about there being developmental challenges, like things that other people went through when they were younger, I glossed over with food. Mm. So there's, I feel like there's still a lot of parts of me that are playing catch up, you know, even as, you know, at the age that I'm at, like in terms of how I relate to people and, you know, relationships and emotions and how I handle my emotions and all of those things and having to be conscious of that. Like, 
I think the toll that it takes, though, it relates to what we've just been talking about is all of those things that you have to do to adapt to a world that you don't fit in take up a lot of space in your head. Yeah. You know, it takes it, it rents, you know, it's like let you let it live rent free in your brain. And you eventually, when you realize how much of your mental energy was going towards adapting your life, you're not conscious of it when you're doing it. It's afterwards when you're like, wow, you know, I have, <laughs> I have all this, all, so much more kind of calculation power up here in my brain that I feel like I didn't have before because I used to have to spend all this time, you know, focusing on the physics of my body moving through the world. Did you, um, what makes, I'm sorry, what makes keto sure. work for you? Sure. So for me, the thing that, that, because a, a part of, you know, obviously what I've been talking about is like, I, I identify as someone who has a food addiction. And one of the things that I found with keto was actually being able to finally get my body's hormonal profile in line. So I can identify when I have hunger, that's actual physical hunger or it's something that's in re response to an emotional reaction. If it's real hunger or if it's being driven by something else, is it being driven by stress? Is it being driven by, you know, feelings, things along those lines. And it was through the satiation provided by the fat, the higher fat and protein on a ketogenic diet that I started to, to be able to learn those lessons. Like for me, when I first started, like when I did paleo, uh, I feel like I white knuckled a lot through that journey. Like I didn't have, I had more days where I was struggling, then I felt relief from hunger. And with keto, I finally realized what it can actually feel like to be satiated by food, you know, to not always be thinking about what comes next, to not always have that fire burning inside of me, you know, to stoke it and keep it going, where by eating a, you know, a, a dietary makeup that gives me that sense of relief and that sense of freedom, you know, was a game changer for me. Even when I started keto, I started out in the what most people call kind of lazy keto, mm -hmm. which is paying attention to carbs and not really paying attention to fat and protein, just eating fat and protein to satiation. And I went from 480 to 290 doing that. And actually, I went down to 280. And I started keto? to put weight back. What, I'm sorry? The yeah, lazy with lazy keto. keto. Okay. And I got down to 280 and my weight started to creep back up, but I still was paying attention to carbs and just eating fat and protein to satiation, but I was gaining weight which some people in the keto sphere will tell you it's impossible to, to gain weight if you're eating keto. And I'll tell you that's a dirty lie. Um, mm -hmm. If you are someone who suffers from food addiction or, you know, from those challenges, you can out eat any diet. And I was out eating the diet. So I knew I was going to have to start paying attention to calories and macros more tightly and things along those lines. And that's when I actually started working with a coach because I tried to formulate that on my own and just got lost. And so I started working with someone to help me figure that out. And that was when I actually first a, a ketogenic diet that was truly higher fat, you know, up there in that 75, 80% fat range. And that was a game changer for me. The, the relief I felt from hunger when I did that was, I, I don't even think I can describe it in words. Like it was like there was a fire inside of me that was gone. You know, I was able to go weeks and days at a time without even thinking about food. Like mm -hmm. it changed my perspective you know, my, one of the things my coach said to me the first during one of our first phone calls was, you know, he asked me what my goals were. And then he said, here, you know, my goals for you is I want you to not see food as entertainment anymore and for you to actually see food as fuel. And he described it as food as fuel that can be enjoyed. And I laughed at him like out loud. And I was like, good luck with that. I'm like, 
food has been the only thing that has brought me enjoyment in my life. And you think that's going to change. Good luck with that, buddy. And it was about a year in that I found myself having a discussion with someone in DMs on Instagram where I was saying to them, you know, you got to get to where I am. You got to get to where you see food as fuel that you can enjoy, not just as the enjoyment itself. And it stopped me in my tracks, like slapped me in the face. That was, that was genuinely how I was feeling. And that wasn't something I was ever able to feel when I ate a different way. And it's why when, you know, there, there are some people that make magical claims about keto that I just don't believe, you know, it's not necessarily that you're, because you're eating a ketogenic diet that you're losing weight. You know, it doesn't, you know, it's a caloric deficit that, you know, and yeah, Mm -hmm. hormones come into play and all of that, but it's a caloric deficit that causes you to lose weight. But for me, it's the ketogenic diet that allowed me to achieve a caloric deficit without going insane without having to white knuckle, without having to cry myself to sleep, without having to do all those things that I had to do before on other diets. Well, yeah, because on the keto diet, like, you know, um, when, I'm sorry, I'm going to ask this one question before I get yeah. into that. Uh, when you were doing lazy keto, what were you keeping your carbs at? Around like, I keep mine around like 25 to 30. Um, I was doing, at that point in my life, I was net carbs and I was doing 20 to 25 net carbs. Yeah, okay. So it was well, about the same in that. Um yeah. What I love, about I do the, total carbs now, which is a whole nother discussion, but yeah, I need to look in. So, is that called clean keto then? Yeah, it's what it is, is it's it's realizing, and you know, this I know this is a quick tangent, but mm-hmm. it's the fact that like net carbs is subtracting fiber and sugar alcohols from the carb count and food that you're eating. And when you're eating 20 to 25 net carbs, you could probably be eating upwards of 150 to almost 200 total carbs, depending on the types of food choices you're making. When you're right. eating total carbs, you're less likely to load up on sweet treats and the stuff that you probably shouldn't be eating in the first place as regularly. And you're making more of your carb choices from things like vegetables, you know, things along those lines. Yeah. Cause I I live in the net carb thing Mm -hmm. right now. And, um, you know, like I love this little Atkins Reese's pizza uh, Mm -hmm. cup thing, you know, that you buy at Sam's club. Oh yeah. Like I usually have, I'm pretty consistent with it. One a day after dinner, usually, you know, and like, but like, you know, it, when I started finding all these different things I could eat on keto was within my 25 net carbs a day, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was a game changer, man, because man, I bought this pizza crust from, um, I know you've heard of them, thin slim foods mm-hmm. and you know, it's got zero carbs, zero, it's got a shitload of protein and like, it's just, it's just so good. And, and I'm a guy that loves pizza and I can make the pizza with mm-hmm. rouse sauce and all kinds of stuff, make it good and still you know, still be good for the end and and say under the problem that we run into with net carbs is net carbs was created by marketers, not by scientists. Oh, okay. It was Atkins was creating a bar that had a higher total carbs because they had using a fair amount of soluble corn fiber and people weren't buying it. And so they said, well, no, you subtract the fiber. And so that's net carbs. And that's kind of where then everyone jumped on that train. And what they're finding with a lot of studies now is that for some fibers and for some sugar alcohols, we digest and take a carb impact from them. Oh. So there are th- like specifically like soluble corn fiber, which is used by in products like smart sweets and a lot of the sweetened bars and things along those lines. Soluble corn fiber for a lot of people will hit your blood sugar the same way that regular glucose will. Like it's, it's a, me- it's a bit of a mess, like in terms of does this one affect me? Does it not affect me? Like, you look at FDA labeling and all of those things, and it's kind of wild, like where they're allowed to subtract some things, but they still have to put the caloric impact. But if you're not digesting something, how does it have caloric impact? Like it's just, 
it, there's a, a lot of confusion, I think, there that can come up in the end. So I think if someone's doing net carbs and it's working for them, great, keep doing it. But if you find that your, your progress is stalling or you're still having cravings and you're still in that place, consider switching to, to total carbs. Give yourself a higher number of total carbs and see what happens there. I think that's what our buddy Mark does, Tony, is total carbs now. Can you tell us more about your podcast? Sure. Um, like how did you so like, start it or how long you've been doing it and all that good stuff. So it's, it's called the fat guy forum. It, we just, this July passed the two year anniversary. I am coming up this week is the 146th episode. I think um, I actually bought the, uh, the domain subscription and everything and got it set up and took me a year to launch it because I hated hearing my voice. So I kept recording episodes and deleting them and recording episodes and deleting them and did that for a long time. And I, I finally came across, there's, there's a, a guy who runs, uh, created the clothing brand, hate brand goods, Matt Vinson, who's a Highland games champion. And he has a podcast. And one of the things that he said on there was, you know, you don't get to episode 100 without doing a hundred episodes. And <laughs> I had a friend kind of throw that in my face and be like, well, listen to what Matt said. And so I was like, okay, fine. I got to do this. So knowing even that my editing skills weren't that great, I just launched it and started going and, you know, have, have brought a lot of kind of amazing people into my life through the show. Like I, like I said before, the podcast focuses on telling men's stories. I, I get some pushback sometimes where they're like, well, why did you just talk to men? I'm like, well, because I think there are a fair number of podcasts out there that already talk to women. And if someone would like to start a podcast, you know, if there was someone out there who wanted to start a podcast to share women's stories, I'd, I'd help them. I would be more than willing to be a part of that. Um, I would personally like to someday do some episodes where I talk to the partners of some of the men on my show. And so we can kind of get that other perspective. I think that would be interesting, but for right now, I kind of keep the podcast to its, its intent and its purpose, um, which is just sharing men's stories. Like I have guys on the show that are just starting their weight loss journeys. I've had guys on the show that have been at it for decades. Uh, you know, I had someone on recently, he was 550 pounds at the age of 17 and he's now 32. Um, and he's down over 250 pounds and he's a personal trainer. Like, oh, nice. you know, the, the, the transformations can be pretty incredible. Like the, the guy who's, who's coming on this week's, who's on this week's episode, who was on my 600 pound life, like I said, was over 700 pounds. He now is like, he's got to be down almost 500 pounds. Like it's, it's pretty incredible. Like hearing some of their transformations and hearing the things that are the same is also great. Like I mentioned, I did that episode that was on what my life was like at 540 pounds. And I shared on that episode what I used to have to do to get myself clean after I went to the bathroom. And I got dozens of emails and DMS and responses from people saying, I do the same thing. And I thought I was the only person. Yeah. And, but I also, I also get messages from women who's are, are, you know, married, partnered, dating men, larger men. And they're like, I never knew that these might be things that he goes through. And so now I talk to him about it. Like it, it creates this sense of dialogue, which I think can be really powerful. And for me, it just, it's, it's been incredible to see all the different tools that people use. Like sometimes people assume that I do a keto podcast and it's not just a keto podcast. I've had guys on that just basically do calorie counting. I have guys on that have become bodybuilders. I have guys on that have had all every weight loss surgery you can think of have used Octavia, have used Weight Watchers. You know, there's even a couple of guys who like myself back when they were kids, they were using Richard Simmons deal a meal. Like they've, they've done everything. And the, there's, there's some commonality there. I'm, I'm recording with another guy on Monday who is just starting his journey. 
And a lot of times I'll reach out to guys who are at the beginning of, of a weight loss journey or aren't even sure what they're going to do, you know, on that journey. And they're like, well, I don't feel like I have a story to tell. And I'm like, well, there's something I think people need to hear what it's like to get started. I think people need to hear about what it's like to make a decision about the path you're going to follow. Like, it's great to be able to reflect on it, but I appreciate those people that are willing to let us into what it's like when you're just getting it going and you're just beginning that, or you're in the middle of that place, or you got to your weight loss goal. And like me, you put all the weight back on, you're starting over. I've had a ton of guys on that have gone through that. Do you think a lot of guys don't have an outlet? Like as far as like talking about their feelings and all that good stuff. So that's kind of like a safe space with your podcast for them. Well, I hope my podcast is, and I I think it is like, I, I think, you know, we, we don't put a big enough emphasis on, on the mental health challenges that men face, uh, you know, and I think that they can be significant at times. And I don't, I think in a lot of ways, like when men talk about weight, it's, it's never that they don't want to share, you know, the, the hard parts of it, you know, it's like, they just want to share the successes. They just want to share the great stuff. And like for vanity you know, I, reasons. Yeah. For vanity or for being seen as, as not as strong as a man, yeah. you know, like seeing that, you know, like for some reason it's, quote unquote, not manly to share that you failed, to share that you've fallen, you know, to share that you've gone through those different things. Like, I think having a space where people can talk about it is, has been the most powerful thing for me, like allowing people to open up and maybe talk about things they went through earlier in their lives and things that have changed and haven't changed and challenges in their relationships. And, you know, I I had one guy on who, one of the, one of my early guests who became a good friend, he talked about what it was like when he was almost 500 pounds and he was injured and his wife had to wipe his butt for him for several months. Yeah. And, you know, what was that like? And that's not really something you sit around and talk to, you know, when you meet up with the guys after work, you don't really sit around and talk about those things. And so I think allowing people to role model that behavior might open some of those doors for other people. What um? can you tell us about um, your keto meal program? I'm sorry, keto road program. Mm-hmm. So I, the keto road, he is so the keto road is actually um, the guy who was my coach, Jonathan Shane. He that's his Instagram handle is the keto road. And he created the keto road company, um, you know, to be his coaching company that I now work for a part of. And I work, we, we don't do meal plans. You know, one of the things that we do is, you know, I feel very strongly that almost any diet will work. So when you, when you give someone a cookie cutter diet, it might help them lose some weight short term, but it doesn't help them work on everything that you need to work on to be successful, especially long-term success. So we approach things from a holistic nutrition perspective, meaning we look at you as a whole individual. It's not just about what you eat. It's about how you move your body. It's about how you're approaching your mindset. We consider nutrition, activity, and mindset to be the three pillars of, of, of the work that we do. I work with people. So I, I do work with people creating very specifically formulated ketogenic diets. I work with people who are just starting and working with a more basic, like helping people understand food choices. Like I've worked with people, you know, which blew me away at at some points who are, you know, I work with men and women. Um, Majority of my clients are women um, who are in their thirties and forties and have never died in their life. So no one has ever talked to them about what fat, protein, and carbs even means, never minds how it should, you know, what ratios you should be eating and how many calories you should be eating. Like they don't even understand what a macronutrient and a micronutrient is. So I start with a person where they're at and help them work at making better food choices, help them work with, you know, start where they're at physically and work on what it means to build an activity routine, to build the habits they need to, they need to develop, to work against those habits that they've built that have gotten to that place they are at in their life. So 
I work with clients, you know, some, some people just need nutrition set up for them. So I do basic weight management, where it's just, we set up your macros and we have check-in and accountability and that sort of piece. And we ad- adapt your macros as needed. I work with clients where I talk to them every week live and we have discussions about personal goals and challenges and what are they working on and what are the things they need to change and how is that going and what are their setbacks and what's going well and what's not going well and helping people understand how to make better food choices. Like how, you know, I don't start day one and tell a person that they need to have vegetable oil and non-grass fed, you know, not conventionally raised meats completely out of their lives and everything needs to be completely gone and perfect. Like it's about helping a person build a pathway to better health and do it in a way that's sustainable, I think is so important. Like I've worked with some people where a week in, we've realized that the ketogenic diet isn't something that they're going to be able to sustain. So it might help them in the short term, you know, to lose some weight. But if their goal is really to keep it off and to get healthier, maybe they need to look at a different way of eating. Um, And I've even started now working with people who are following all different kinds of, of weight loss plans or have different types of goals that might not even be related to weight loss through accountability coaching, where we work one-on-one on how to determine what your purpose is for what, you, what you're doing, what your goals are, and how you build a sustainable action plan around it. What do you think about train, uh, sorry, not trainers, but like, yeah, trainers and nutritionists that like saying the word, the K word is like a sin. Mm-hmm. Don't, what do you? Well, I think here's one of the things that really frustrates me is one there are, especially in the influencer space, there are some, even some doctors in the influence influencer space who badmouth keto all the time, but actually prescribe ketogenic diets to clients that are dealing with type two diabetes and blood sugar issues and all of those things. Like it's just, it's that they feel like it's not something that everyone needs to be doing. I get upset when I see someone who has never been significantly overweight or has never dealt with like a food addiction issue or a food compulsion issue. And they can look me in the face and tell me that what I'm doing nutritionally is wrong. And they have no reason to back that up aside from the fact their favorite answer is, well, you're restricting food. And I'm like, yes, I am restricting food. You know, you don't tell an alcoholic to learn how to drink a little bit of alcohol. Telling someone who has trouble controlling Reese's peanut butter cups that they should keep Reese's peanut butter cups in their house and just learn to live with them is insanity to me. Like I I think, but I also honestly... I don't think that keto is the diet that every person should follow. Like, I think if it's something that aligns with your goals and aligns with the way you can, you know, eat a sustainable diet, fantastic. If you like the results, do I think every person could benefit from it? Probably. But do I think it's the right diet for everyone? No, I think you need to be open to discovering for yourself what's going to be right. And I just don't like when people put these absolutes out there. And also, there are some people in that space that badmouth keto all the time. But when I talk to them personally, they're like, well, you know, I just say that to draw attention to myself. <laughs> you know, so I don't mean it. Yeah. I just say it because I know people are going to are going to cheer me on when I do it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's great. Congratulations for you. Like, I, I, I think there is so much bio individual individuality when it comes to how we approach food and what what works for one person doesn't work for another. And for someone to make blanket statements that something is just wrong. It's like, okay, you know, I, I used to get really angry and want to be someone who would reply in comments and things along those lines. And then it's just like, okay, you know, what that person says and does eventually will play out, you know, they, and again, I, I hate to kind of always go back to this, but that weight loss influencer who 
has never really struggled with food issues and it was just a, a, a habit problem and they learned about nutrition and the weight dropped off, I'm happy for them. I'm incredibly happy for them. But when they look at someone who's 500 pounds and tell them just to do what they did, I think they've got their head up their asses. Like they're not, it's, it's not going to be the same thing. The same is the same program isn't going to work. The same approach isn't going to work. You know, it can't be, you know, there there's, I, I have a lot of friends that are you know, coaches that are very active, especially in the eating disorder space. And they talk about this concept of, are you an abstainer or a moderator when it comes to food? You know, are there things that you need to abstain from, or are you someone that can moderate food? And you can be that person that has a Reese's peanut butter cup and having one is more than enough for you. And you feel good and you move on with your life. I have one Reese's peanut butter cup and it lights a fire in me when they're, you know, the kind of fire where there are never enough Reese's peanut butter cups to put that fire out. You know, so I know for me, there are foods that I need to abstain from, you know, but are there things that I can moderate? I think there are. Like, I think it's about being willing to learn for yourself. Like, where do you fall on that spectrum? Like, what are the things that you need to do to take care of yourself? And if you find freedom through restriction, which is how I describe approaching keto for me, yes, there are things that I don't eat. Like, but I get that question all the time. And I feel like I share this, this, this example a million times on my page and podcasts and stories, but it, it just fits. Like you've got that person that says, you know, I could, I would do keto, but I can't live without bread or I can't live without cake or, you know, gourmet, you're never, you know, you're going to, you're, you're going to, you're never going to have cake again in your life. And my response to that is it's not that I'm never going to have cake again. You know, it's not that I'm never going to have bread again. It's that I know that if I never did have cake again, I could thrive and live a happy life. You know, I could live a well-adjusted, my body would live the way that it needs to live. I would not die if I never ate cake again. So then if I make a choice to have cake, I'm making a choice to have cake. I'm making a choice to have the consequences of having that cake. It's not about deciding that it's something I can live with or live without. It's about realizing that by allowing myself to be okay with knowing I can live without those things gives me a sense of peace when it comes to food. Are you in a are you in a mental space now to where if you wanted the cake you could or like a cheat he meal just, or whatever what he was just yeah. saying it though yeah I think it's it's and I I talk about it as being something that I you know my friend Samantha Samantha Souza who's a coach she uses the phrase planned deviations and I, I like that phrasing instead of calling it a cheat or a treat because cheating never gets us anywhere in life so why do we call it a cheat like it's this idea that every choice everything I do with food is a choice even when I'm when I'm strict total carb keto or not, I'm still choosing the food that I'm eating. So I, I use this, I've, I've given you many examples of Disneyland, but one of the things that I really enjoy is there's a cookie at Disneyland at the Mary Poppins bakery called the Matterhorn Macaroon. It is the only location on the planet you can get this cookie. It is a hybrid of a coconut macaroon and a shortbread cookie that looks like a mountain and it's covered in white chocolate. White chocolate is one of my favorite things on the planet. So this cookie hits every button for me because the only place I can get it is somewhere that makes me very happy. So when I go to Disneyland and I did a, a couple months ago, I had a Matterhorn macaron. It wasn't something that I needed to get six of them. It wasn't something where I felt like driving home. All I was thinking about was that Matterhorn macaron because I had planned for that experience. And I knew that that experience was something I would have in that place at that location. And it was a worth it experience to me. Buying a candy bar at a gas station I don't think ever fits that definition of being a worth it food experience. You know, we can get these foods in so many places now, you know, it's not like the days where if you wanted cookies, you had to make cookies. Now you can go into, like I said, a gas station or a convenience store, 
And there can be 50 different cookies to pick from just in that space. Like we have such easy access to this food now. And I think when you're thinking about whether a food is worth it or not, you need to think about that. Is it this mass produced thing that you could have every day and you've had before in your life and you know what it tastes like and you know what that experience is like, or is it something that's about a special time or an experience with people? Or is it a piece of cake at someone's wedding? Is it, a, you know, I have a, a client who one of the things that he is, he's always said is one of his goals is to be the dad that can have an ice cream cone with his kids and then not fixate on ice cream for the rest of the night, you know, just to go have that ice cream cone with his kids. And it doesn't have to be perfectly hand spun, you know, homemade ice cream. It could be a scoop from a, a shop on the corner, but it's the experience. And so we talk a lot about what does it mean to have food experiences? Like, I think as a culture, you know, as cultures, we came together through food. You know, the fact that we could find it better when we work together and celebrate with it together. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It's how we've perverted it over time that becomes the problem. So for me, if I decide something is worth it, I'll, I'll, I'll make it worth it. Like I said, I'm a total carb person most of the time. I'm planning to use one of those low-carb breads for a stuffing recipe for Thanksgiving because I want to recreate my grandfather's stuffing recipe, see how it is if I try to recreate it with a low-carb bread. I don't normally eat low-carb bread. I don't really like the ingredients and stuff along those lines, but I want to see what happens with it. So I'm going to try it out. Do y'all have a Kroger out there in San Diego? Um, isn't it? It's another brand out here, isn't it? Is it Ralph's? Oh, I'm not sure. I was going to say Kroger has a um, zero carb bread they make, and it actually tastes like bread. The one from Aldi with the zero carbs. Mm-hmm. When I found this Kroger one, I'll never go back. It's a little bit more expensive than the Aldi one. Don't get me wrong, but like it's they're like two completely different things, man. Like one's a bread and one's not a bread. If you really want to think about it. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing is like, and when you look at the ingredients, like one, how is something zero carb? You digest some of that, like, yeah, whatever. Um, but it's got wheat in it. It's got wheat, wheat, gluten, wheat flours. It's might have sugar in it. Like that, that doesn't even necessarily, I wouldn't define those as, as strict keto foods, but when they help you have an experience and they prevent you from falling into the original form of something, so that you can kind of still maintain your progress, you know, having them now and then I don't think it's a bad thing. You know, it's, I think it's when you buy that bread at Kroger and it's a main, it's the main bulk of your meals every day. You know, that's the, that's when I talk to people about it and it's like, you know, we've built our lives around treats and things along those lines. And it's like, we have to get back to this place of realizing that a treat should be a treat and sh- shouldn't necessarily be something we do every day. So do you, uh, do you have like a workout regime or anything like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I go to the gym. Um, I also like to, uh, I live in the community of ocean beach here in San Diego. I like to take our dog for walks. Um, she is actually right beside me right now, distraught because my sister just left to go to a party. So she's, I don't know if you heard her whimpering a few minutes ago to get into the room. (laughs) Um, but I like to take her for walks. Um, I belong to a gym and I've got a program that a friend set up for me. Um, I'm not breaking any records. Um, but you know, I like to, I, for me, I, I like going for, for me, cardio is better done outside than inside treadmills drive me insane. I'm the most uncoordinated person on the planet. So I've tried to do an elliptical, but I, I've tried it like three times. And every time I fall off, um, like I'm, I look like one of those, like, inflatable arm waving man that they put in front of a car, a car lot when they're selling. Like, I feel like that's what I look like on a, on an electrical. So I've never quite made that work, but I like going for a walk in the Hills. 
Um, I like switching up the lifting routine every so often, you know, whether like right now I've got a push pull legs routine that I'm doing, you know, in the past I've done like individual body work, you know, full body workouts, individual body parts, like just to keep it, you know, changed up every so often. So I, I don't get too bored with it. Did you, when, when you first lost all your weight, did you have a lot mm-hmm. of, did you have a lot of excess skin? I do have a fair amount of excess skin. Like I, I think it's not as, as bad as I've seen on some people. Mm-hmm. Um, but to my, through my experience and my experience with a lot of different people, um, extra when you, at my biggest, my waist was 86 inches. Like I'm wow. going to have excess skin, you know, I'm going to have extra skin. I, I, I had a pair of 80 inch pants that I wore to several family weddings. Like I, I'm going to have excess skin around the middle, you know, when I, I cut that in more than in half, um, your, your, your body just can't, re- can't re- retract from that completely. Like, and no amount of collagen or ro- foam rolling or brushing or any of those things is going to take care of that. Uh, there's things I think you can do eventually, but the only way to get rid of it is, is skin removal surgery in the end, like to have a dramatic change. Yeah, I was talking to a friend actually this morning, um, and he was asking me how I was doing in journey or my how my journey was going and stuff. And um, you know, he told me about him, and he's like, "Yeah." Uh, I asked him about about this about his skin, and he was like, "Yeah, I got some. I mean, I got. I'm gonna have a lot by the time I'm done, but I'm gonna try to tone it as much mm-hmm. as I possibly can, and then get the surgery." Like, and that's and the best advice I've heard is get to your maintenance weight and stay there for two years, and then get the surgery. Because within two years, your body has done all the healing that it can do. And you're, one of the things, too, like for your body to heal well, you need to be eating in a, a well-balanced place of, of calories, like to be at your maintenance calories, not in that severe caloric de- deficit where you're trying to lose weight. Um, and also, you know then where you're going to be able to maintain around weight-wise. So you're not having skin removed before your body has kind of found that homeostasis place again. So I think giving it some time, you know, that was advice actually from a surgeon that I talked to. He's like, he doesn't like to do weight loss surgery on anyone who has just finished losing weight. He wants them to give it time, at least a year before they consult with him because he sees what happens. And heck, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen, if you're too aware of a lot of the TV shows that TLC used to do about bigger people. Um, I'm online. I've been online friends for years with one of the gentlemen who was on, I think his show was called the the 650 pound virgin and he lost over 450 pounds. Is that that David guy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been friends with him for a long time. Um, he put all the weight back on and had had skin removal surgery and liposuction done and it affected how the weight came back on his body, like physically affected it. Like, you know, it's something that he went through, like dealing with like how the, where are the weight, because the fat cells aren't in the same places anymore. Mm. Um, you know, he knock on, you know, he's actually, he's had a lot of health challenges, but he's still alive and he has lost a significant amount of weight again. Um, and is doing is, is a fantastic person, but you know, he's, you know, I see, I see people that go through these transformations and then have surgeries done and aren't necessarily in the place where they feel like they should be yet. Um, even in terms of how they relate to themselves. And so my advice to anyone is always, you know, kind of get to maintenance, live there for a while, get to know your body again, and then decide if you still want to make those changes. What advice would you give to somebody that has lost a shitload load of weight mm-hmm. as far as mental? Mm-hmm. Because I, I think that's a thing that yeah. a lot of people don't take in consideration. 
Because I know, like, even like Raul said, like, when he's lost weight, he still sees him a certain mm-hmm. a certain way, like as a bigger person. I think well, one, I don't I think you have to accept that that never completely goes away. Mm-hmm. I think also you have to accept that a lot of the challenges that you faced when you were bigger, you know, especially the mental, emotional challenges, they don't ever go away. You know, your relationship with food is never 100 percent perfect. You just get better at dealing with it and you learn new tools to help you. So don't ever. My advice is always don't ever say the words I'm cured. Because I don't think we ever are. You know, I think there so still like will be challenges recovery, for the rest of the- basically. Yeah. Like I think you're in recovery. And I think something that I, I think a lot of people that have gone on a significant weight loss journey is they kind of hit that place of being in maintenance and at their goal. And then they don't know what to do because they spent so much, they've spent so long focusing on moving weight mm-hmm. that they don't know what to think about any, you know, what, what comes next. And so that's why I think, especially if you're, you're not even at, you're getting close to that place and you're not there yet think about what you want to work on next. Like, what is your next goal? Mm. You need to have something in mind and it doesn't have to be weight related or even health related, but it can be, it can be about, you know, a physical challenge. It can be about, you know, getting into a new sport. It can getting into a new activity. It can be whatever, you know, wanting to learn a new way of cooking, like having goals to work on, I think is important for people that have struggled with significant weight gain and weight loss. Like you need something to focus on and it could be your career. It can be your family. You know, you can, but you need to be able to clearly define it for yourself because I think the clear definition of your why and your purpose is the key to weight loss. And I think it's also the key to keeping that weight off, you know, defining what are the markers that tell you that you are being successful. I think also not being afraid to use the tools that you've learned along the way when you need them again. You know, I talk with clients about this a lot, like that idea that if you're in maintenance and working on maintenance and you're even working on intuitive eating, and you start to notice the scale moving in the wrong direction, you know what you need to do to get the scale moving in the right direction. It doesn't mean you're a failure if you have to go back to tracking your food. It just means you need to use that for the moment and see where you're at and see what you're doing and where the, you know where might your choices be stepping off. Don't be afraid to do the things you need to do to take care of yourself. And, you know, don't, I think also like it, it's, and this was something I, I think I struggled with that first time. I went from defining myself as, the happy fat guy to the weight loss guy. And then I didn't think about what did I be, what do I become next? Like, who am I as a person? I think doing that work on who you are as a person is as important as doing that work on what you put into your body and how you move your body. Like you need to have that clear, you know, work on that clear understanding. We don't always have the answers to every question and there's always going to be new questions to ask, but being willing to always be in that place of mindfulness, that place of, why am I making the choices that I'm making? What is the purpose of this? It allows you to lead that life that moves, moves you through the life you want to live. And also for a lot of us, it's a life that you earned, you know, going from five, you know, when I, I like to say like the heavier I got, the smaller my world got, you know, when you're 540 pounds and can barely walk, you're not going many places. You're not doing many things. You're not interacting with many people. So when you earn that life, when you can now freely move through the world, keep that in focus, realize what you fought for, like give it the value that it deserves, you know, live that life. Don't just live life now. You know, I, I see people all the time then who go from, you know, dealing with massive food addiction to dealing with addiction to exercise and things along those lines. Like it's transference, like do the work you need to work on to handle that, that part of your personality, that part of, and that might mean not just working on diet and exercise, that might mean working with a counselor. That might mean working with a psychiatrist. That might mean doing some mental work that you've put off because 
you were afraid of digging into those things because who knows what might be buried there. But sometimes you have to dig into it so you can get a clear picture of what you need to do to stay on that path going forward. Yeah, it's like they say, it's no point of working on your external if your internal is is messy. Mm -hmm. Because like you'll eventually probably go back to your old habits. Oh, yeah. And if you don't, and if you've done nothing to identify what those habits were, it's they're easier to fall back into. Yeah. You know, if you're the less awareness you have, the easier it is to fool yourself, fall back into that behavior. I, I have a friend that uh, he is coming up on nine years, 10 years being keto and he's lost like 300 pounds. He now just spends most of his days climbing mountains. Um, but one of the things that he feels really strongly about is like, you don't really get the answer as to why you gained the weight in the first place until you, you lose it and you're living without it. Like that's when you have the clearest vision of why you got to that place in the first place. And it's important for you to, to think about that. Like working on that question of what you think brought you to that place is just really important. And it can be scary and it can be hard and it can be something, you know, like we've said, like men don't talk about, but like getting into that kind of self-discovery is just so important to living the life that you want to live moving forward. What do you, you, as far as like your mental state now, what do you do to work on that? Um, I think for me, like one, I've, I've, I've built a really great support network, you know, a network of accountability for myself and, you know, surrounding myself with the people that understand what I've been through and have been through things themselves and we can lean on each other. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the greatest things I discovered along the way this time was journaling. Um, specifically, I don't know if you've, have you ever heard of the five minute journal? Mm -mm. So the five minute journal is this book. You can get it on Amazon pretty cheap and it's got questions you ask yourself in the morning and questions you ask yourself at night. And it allows you to get into the habit of questioning and, talking about gratitude and talking about what are the challenges you faced. And in the morning you get up and you, you share three things that you're grateful for and three things that are going to make today great. And so it's that idea of working on, you know, working on mindset. And for me, that's just become a natural part of my routine since I've been doing this for years. Like it just is now, I think every day about the things that I'm grateful for. And I think every day about the things that I need to do to make today successful. And I try to, at the end of the day, dig into those questions of, what did I do different? You know, what do I need to look at differently tomorrow that I didn't look at today? You know, like building that level of awareness has been probably the biggest help for me from that mindset place. You know, the other thing is like we've been talking about all, all along the way today, like it's that idea of trying to figure out what drives me and where that passion is. And like, that's where a lot of what I do now when it comes to coaching or creating content, you know, writing blogs and things along those lines and creating programs for people like that being able to turn that experience that dominated my life for so long into something that might help other people has given me a real sense of purpose. You know, the, the podcast is something that really drives me, you know, the idea of finding new people and discovering new people's stories and being able to give back through the experience that I had um, is just something that continues every day to grow for me. Uh, can I double back to when we were talking sure. about the trainers and doctors mm -hmm. uh, shitting on keto Yep. Do you think they feel that way because of the high fat part of the diet? Like you can't sustain that forever. You're going to clog your arteries and shit or what? Um, I think some do. I think a lot of doctors are are, are working off of old books. Um, I think it was one of the greatest things for me. Like one of the things we didn't even talk about today was at the end of 2017, I was hospitalized for three weeks with severe pneumonia and almost died. Um, and I stayed keto 
in the hospital during that time. And that was the first time for me in 25 years that I had seen a doctor um, because I had stopped seeing doctors because I knew they were going to tell me that I needed to lose weight and that I probably had diabetes and probably had heart issues. Um, during that hospital stay, I discovered that I had at some point in my past had a heart attack and didn't know it. And so I left the hospital. Um, it was literally New Year's Eve um, of that year and had a primary physician that I needed to see and a cardiologist and a pulmonologist. And so my primary physician, when I first met with him, young guy, very into fasting, but not that well aware of kind of low carb stuff, but learned a lot from talking to me and my experience. And he eventually went keto himself. Uh, my one year checkup, he was, he had gone keto and had lost 30 pounds. And there was a new doctor in their practice that was helping educate them about how to properly interpret cholesterol results. And I don't think all doctors have gotten into that, like understanding particle size being a bigger part of what cholesterol means and, and how cholesterol operates in the body. And I, I do think there's some old fear about fats. I, I honestly, I think doctors, and I've had this discussion with several doctors, like, I think their biggest thing is they don't, they see non-compliance when it comes to dietary changes. They don't see people able to make any change with a diet. So when it's a diet that they see as severe, they just, I think they see people falling off of it faster and harder than they fall off a diet of just counting calories. Like, so it's, there's a lot of them that's, that are jaded by what they've seen. And then I think it's, it, you know, again, it's, it's information and misinformation. And there are some, there are some very vocal people in the keto space that I think put too much emphasis on certain factors. You know, the idea that there was for a long time, there were people screeching that it's all about insulin. And the only thing that matters is insulin control. And when you have insulin control, it doesn't matter how many calories you eat. And it's like, well, no, I think it's grayer than that. You know, it's all of these things and more. Um, so I think it's, it's a little bit of, a little bit of misinformation. It's a little bit of, they just don't see people actually sustaining changes. So, you know, I, I have, I have a friend with type two diabetes whose nutritionist is constantly trying to get him to eat more cake and ice cream because you have to party and you have to enjoy life. So he has out of control blood sugar and his nutritionist is telling him to eat more sweets. Like wow. it terrifies me. And I've literally said to him, this woman is trying to kill you. Like she is literally trying to kill you because she keeps telling you to eat more ice cream. Like you're telling her that you're fine without it. And she's telling you to, to keep doing it, but it's because from their experience, they, they see people not being able to sustain these diets they see as restrictive. Whereas I think if a person changes their mindset and starts to realize that again, like I said, you approach something that involves restriction to gain true freedom, like the sheer number of people that have reversed type two diabetes that have changed their health through changing the food that they eat is so powerful. And I wish more people, more doctors could get on board with the idea that food is probably the most powerful medicine. And if they could try to help people understand that they might see some, some better changes, but I get their frustration. Like, like I said, the, my follow-up visits with my pulmonologist, every visit he recommended I had weight loss surgery. And I'm like, I'm already down at that point. I was probably approaching down 150 pounds and He's like, well, yeah, but most people don't keep weight off when they diet. So you should have weight loss surgery was the discussion we had every time we talked. Well, and well, oh, good. No, go. You go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say he eventually also said that if he refers someone, a patient to weight loss clinic, he gets a kickback for it. So his practice wants them to refer people to weight loss surgery. Like there's a lot of money involved with, with medical as well. Well, that's what I was about to ask. Was he getting a kickback off that? Because isn't oh, yeah. there like a lot? No, it was there, you know, and it, 
look at who who comes and takes doctors and nurses out to lunch. It's medical, it's pharmaceutical reps. Like there's a lot of mess in that 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 world. Like, you know, it's not it's not just about health. It's about for a lot of people, it's about treating. You know, it, it's I wish that every doctor told someone who was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes that the medicine they're gonna we're going to give you will not cure your disease. It will just slow the progress. Type 2 diabetes is a progressive disease, and most of the medications for it slow that progress. But it, those detrimental effects are still going to come unless you make changes. And I, I, I see people that have been type 2 diabetic for 10 plus years having the diagnosis removed from their medical records because they changed the way that they eat, like is power to food. Yeah. And I think that scares some of those people because power to food doesn't lead to profit. Would you uh, recommend um, either of the weight loss surgeries, the lap band or the gastric bypass? I, my feeling is if, if you feel like that is the tool you need to use, then investigate, investigate what the long-term, what the long-term life is and realize that you're still going to have to do the work no matter what. The people that I see that are the most successful from any of the weight loss surgeries are the people that are still are getting up and going to the gym, are changing their approach to food, are eating, you know, higher nutrient dense foods and making better choices and still doing the work they need to do. They just needed that tool to either help them get there or put that perspective into their heads. So I don't, I, it, that's a hard question for me because I have a lot of friends that have had the surgery and I support them, but I, I would recommend weight loss surgery as a, as a last ditch effort. Like I would encourage, I would tell a person there's other things to try before you get to that point. Now your friends that have had this surgeries, mm -hmm. um, do they regret getting it because of restrictions on them now? Um, I don't know if any necessarily, I've talked to some, a couple guys that feel, you know, that because like for some of the, some of the gastric bypass surgeries, you're going to be nutrient deficient for the rest of your life, unless you take, you know, vitamin shots and things along those lines. And that's frustrating to them. Um, for the most part, I, I think the regret I hear is when they realize that the changes they have to make to their lifestyle are the exact same changes they would have had to make if they didn't have surgery oh, and they wanted to lose weight and that they were, it was possible for them to do it. So they more from that place of, I don't regret having the surgery, but I know that I could have done this without it. Now, can you get, can you put the weight back on with the surgeries? Yeah, um, people eat. do. Yes. You very much. Well, can. no, like on the lap, yeah. don't, don't they cut your stomach or something? No, like I mean, if you're like, eating over. They do. They do. But the, here's the thing. So what happens is like, especially like when you look at like sleeve surgery, where they reduce the size of the stomach, mm -hmm. um, you have a year of healing going on there. So the stomach is not growing for a year, but after a year, if you eat improperly, you can stretch your stomach out again. The body grows and adapts like. Look at how, you know, if we were to, you know, d dissect my body right now, the size of my stomach, while probably not as large as it was before, the sheer volume of food I could eat when I was at my heaviest, like your small stomach just doesn't stay small forever. You know, the only way it stays small is if you keep the portions down. If a person starts to overeat, they'll stretch their stomach out again. A lot of people, if you go on to Instagram and look up, you know, get into kind of some of the surgery pages, like you can see people talking about revisions and trying to reset their pouches and you know, the challenge is like they still, the success rate with surgery is still around the same as it is with just plain diet and exercise. See, I had no idea that you had to restrict your lifestyle after the surgeries. I thought that, man, you could just eat and whatever you want and you're good. Well, then also the thing you have to realize too is like, so if you've, if you, have you ever heard of dumping? Mm -mm. 
So after a person has weight loss surgery, if they just, if they eat high sugar, they'll throw it back up. Like your body can't handle it. Like you'll get sick. Mm. Uh, carbonation can hurt. Um, you know, if they drink while they're eating, it can cause problems. Like there's a lot of rules that they have to follow. Like, so you have to, and that's why the thing that I think is so important with weight loss surgery is when a person properly goes through the, the psychological screening for the surgery. Um, they, they are trying to find out if you're going to be able to make the changes you'll need to make after that surgery. Like you have physical, but here's the difference. So like, if you try to overeat right after having the surgery, you're going to get sick. So that's the block. You know, if you know, that's how you're going to feel, even just from going a little over a little over, you're not going to do it. Like, cause you're, it's not just like, oh, I don't feel good. It's physically feeling like death, like lying on the floor of your bathroom sick. Like it, it makes some real physical changes that then allow you to work on the other changes you need to work on. Yeah. I have a friend, she had the surgery like 10 years ago and she, um, I remember talking to her about it and she says that she doesn't like, she didn't, she wishes she didn't do it because of the, the carbonation from like Coke and stuff like that. Like she mm -hmm. can't, she can't drink that stuff because it, oh, yeah. like you just said, she just comes right back up and she used to love drinking like Diet Cokes and stuff. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's why it's good to, like I said, to go into it with your eyes open, talk to people that have had it, I think is really the best advice, you know, talk to someone who's lived through it and, you know, get from them what it really is like, you know, what you really, what you really need to focus on and what, what you really need to make sure you follow and yeah. listen to your doctor, you know? So what is your plan, um, going forward? Like, what is your mission with your podcast and your your page, your Instagram page yeah. and all that good stuff. Well, I, I think it's still through all of it. The, the core concept is showing people that change is possible, you know, because I never believed that, you know, I like, like I said, like I thought, especially when I put the weight back on that, that was my life. That was the life I was, was resigned to the life I was going to be living forever. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote a letter to my parents that I kept by the side of my bed when I was, when I put the weight back on, because I was convinced I wasn't going to wake up. So it was basically a note to them telling them not to be upset that I passed away. Like I was that convinced that change wasn't possible. And it was through finding that spark of hope again, that I discovered that it was. And so I, I want to keep sharing people's stories so that they can see, you know, themselves in the episodes that come out from my podcast, they can hear something that makes them realize that they too can, can reach for these changes. They can, they can change behavior. They can, you know, it can be decades of poor habits that can be rectified. Like there's ways to do it if you're willing to do the work. And I also want to make sure that I'm showing it from the perspective of what it's really like that not every day is sunshine and rainbows. Not every day is perfect. You know, there's, you're going to make mistakes, but it's about you no know, keeping the big picture in, in place and sharing what that big picture is like and continuing to work with people individually to, to help them, you know, find that for themselves. Like, the people I work with, each person might not relate specifically to my journey, but they find something in my journey that draws them to me. And then we work on finding like, what are the touchstones for them that they can work towards and the goals they can reach for. So just that idea of, of helping people see possibility and find some ways to do it. I think giving is one of the best gifts you can get. Mm -hmm. Like just helping others is so rewarding. It's better than getting like a physical gift or money or something like that. It's just, I don't know. It's just, it's cause I remember we did something for the homeless a couple of years ago. And this lady asked me like, cause I kept getting my phone call cause they put my, my phone number on the news. Mm. 
And so I was like, I thought she was a volunteer. And then she's like, no, me and my kids haven't eaten in a couple of days. She's like, and I was like, well, come up here to the community center where we're at. She's like, we don't have a car. And I was like, okay, give me your address and we'll come to you. So we go to her house. Kids look like they hadn't eaten. But just that feeling of how, like how happy they were just for getting food and, you know, the stuff that Mm -hmm. some of us take for granted. It was just like, it's just, it's rewarding. And so what you're doing by helping others is, it's just beautiful, man. Well, I mean, and that's the thing I love is like, so, you know, people can reach out to me on Instagram or they can also email the show, you know, at the fat guy forum at gmail.com. And I'll get random emails from people who are like, you know, I just worked my way through every episode of the show and I've been listening for a year and I've lost 50 pounds and I, or I've decided that I can try again, or, you know, I, I've been at this for so, you know, I feel it hasn't been that long, but I feel like I've been at this, you know, long enough to like have people who are like, you know, I've lost 200 pounds now I've lost 300 pounds now. And I was inspired to start because I saw you sharing what it was like to have a rough day, or you posted that rant on Instagram about how it was okay to say no to to candy at Easter. Like you never know the impact you're going to have on people. And I think the amazing thing is, is when you actually are able to find some of that feedback, you know, hear some of those things, like to have someone send you that DM or have someone reach out to you or drop you an email or anything along those lines. Like it's, it's powerful. And it's, it is one of the, the things that I feel blessed about in all of this is that I started sharing my journey to keep myself accountable. Because I knew that if I didn't, I would go back to hiding what I was doing and and just put all the weight, you know, I wouldn't lose any weight or, you know, w- wouldn't do what I was doing. I had to put it all out there and show the good, the bad and the ugly. I'm, I'm known for my wild before pictures because I used to share them on my Instagram. Like they're, they were, it was never something I hid, but it can give, you know, people perspective now. And so when someone that is like, well, you know, that used to be me at the family event you know, taking up the two chairs at the table and doing those things and doing all of that. And it's, it's powerful to hear that impact. And it, it's great to be able to do and it. And honestly, it's, it's great to be able to do it for work. You know, I don't coach for free, you know, my coaching programs, like, because it's, there's time and effort put into that, and, you know, real hard work one-on-one with a person. But even with that experience, knowing that I can see those people grow and change and see real things start to happen and see, what happens for them when they, they prove to themselves, they can do things that they didn't think was possible. It's just really, you know, something that I'll be grateful for, for the rest of my life. Even if I were to stop today, what I've been able to do so far has been an amazing gift. Yeah. And also like when people are saying, thank you, like, you know, did you help them with their, with your, with their journey and stuff like that? Like, isn't that just another tool? Like, I use this as a tool. Like, oh man, you know, I don't want to stop now. You know, I'm helping people or not, not saying I'm helping everybody, but you know, you look at a person mm-hmm. that texts me or say something, Hey man, I'm, I started working out the other day because I saw you doing it. And you know, if you can do it, why can't I do it kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, so I was like, yeah, it's awesome, bro. Just get in there and just knock it out, man. And you know, it'll, it'll all come together slowly, but surely. Mm-hmm. And some days you just don't want to do it, but you'll remember oh, yeah. that you're doing it for a reason and you'll go in there and do it. Oh, for sure. Well, and that's that accountability piece to it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that, you know, you're sharing because it's not just for other people. It's for yourself. You know, I get as much out of it as, as people that also get something else out of it as well. What is one of the, like, you don't have to go in detail, but like one of the stories that somebody has told you that like stuck with you as far as like somebody reaching out and about your journey. I think, I, I, 
it's one of the stories that stands, you know, the stories that always kind of hit me the most is when people realize the impact that their, their behavior and their weight and that has had on other people, you know, that, and I don't mean that in a, in the transformation sense. I mean, you know, I, I remember one, one of my early guests on the podcast, he shared what it was like. He had one day where he was sitting on his lawn in on a, in a, on a chair, you know, on a plastic chair, you know, a lawn chair and his child started running towards the road and there was a car coming. And luckily his wife got to his daughter before anything happened, but he realized that he wasn't able to get up out of that chair to save his child. Like that could have happened. Yeah. And that was that moment for him. And having people share those moments, you know, is, is always something that stands out to me. You know, like when I talk to someone who knows that they were knocking on death's door and that they've saved their life, you know, and that they did it, you know, and, and when you can hear in their voice that they realize that they were the one that did it, you know, they were the person they, they were the hero that they were waiting for. You know, a lot of times in our lives we're waiting for people to come along and save us. Yeah. And when you realize that you're the person that's going to come along and do it, that's, that's, that's powerful. And like, I just think for me, every time someone reaches out to me and they say, because of what you shared, I did X, Y, and Z, you know, like those, every one of those stories stands out to me, like yeah. every one of those moments, like, but when someone, you know, when, when someone realizes it, because I think, cause sometimes that's also like when people say, well, so, oh, so he lost weight for his family. He didn't lose weight for himself. It's like, no, that idea of being there for another human being is really powerful and is, is rewarding. And now that he can do that, that's the gift that he gave himself. That's why he'd made that change. In the end, it wasn't necessarily about those other people. It was about giving himself access access to be able to do that. You know, that was the big thing for me. Like me realizing that my family was going to need me around and alive wasn't about them depending on me. It was about me realizing that I owed a debt to this community that raised me. You know, I owed, I owed that. I owed that responsibility to them, you know, in a way that I had never really thought about before, you know, that idea that we're all interconnected as human beings and that we can draw that from other people is, is just really, really powerful. And hearing someone who just says I had given up and now I've decided that I haven't given up and, you know, I've decided to try again, or I'm not going to give up or, you know, whatever way they want to phrase it is just always the best thing in the world to me. Yeah. I would imagine the whole journey is you versus you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh yeah, am I gonna kill my inner bitch mm-hmm. to do the thing that I know I need to do to be here? And it, no one else ever picked up a fork for me. Yeah, you know, even when people talk about enabling and things along those lines, like no one ever handed. You know, someone could hand me something to eat, but I still my hand then carries it to my mouth. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, it is me. I hold the ultimate responsibility, and it's the same way. That then if someone tries to push food on me now, I own, I own the responsibility of what I say to them. You know, it doesn't matter what they do. Mm-hmm. You know, in the end, it matters what I do. Yeah, like I have a friend who uh, he's pretty overweight. And it's like you can't blame the people around him because, you know, it's he's like at the end of the day making the choices to continue on that path. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, I shouldn't want his weight loss more than he wants it. Right. Mm-hmm. And it and sometimes it hurts, like when you love somebody and care about them, like you see them like going down this destructive path. 
But it's like I'm not in their head, so I don't know where they're at mentally either. Well, you know? I mean, that's. I mean, I get people all the time, you know, that I haven't seen in a long time saying to me, like, I'm so happy that you saved your life. You know, I was so worried about you for years, like all these things that we never say to each other, because mm-hmm. we also know. I also know that when people did say things like that to me, I push back against it. Yeah. You know, I would eat more. You know, I remember once even being confronted by a stranger in a supermarket parking lot. And, you know, it was this this woman who she had lost a ton of weight through weight loss surgery and handed me her doctor's card and wanted me to talk to her doctor. And I immediately went to the Wendy's drive through in that parking lot and was like, you think you you think I'm fat now? Let me show you what I can do. Like, you know, we don't always handle things properly. I mean, I had a I had a very close friend eventually write me a letter when I was at my heaviest that basically said because he had tried to talk to me about getting healthier and had supported me when I made efforts and saw me kind of throw those efforts away. And so he wrote me a letter once that was like, if you're not willing to make change to help yourself, I can't be a part of this anymore. Yeah, I can't. I, and he literally wrote, I, I can't be around to watch you kill yourself. And that made me angry. You know, I was like, who the hell are you to say that to me? Like, ah, you know, and I, I wrote this nasty response and all of this, like, and we eventually talked years later and reconciled and all of that. But, you know, some, he needed to write that letter for himself in the end. It didn't really have anything to do with me. Yeah. Like, and that's what I, the biggest thing that I've learned through this journey is in the end, all I can control is myself and how I respond to things. I can't control what anyone else does. I can't control how anyone else reacts to me the choices anyone else makes, all of that is wasted energy. So it's better for me to focus my energy on the choices that I can make and allow myself, like when people always say, you know, how do I, how do I get a family member to lose weight? You know, I want how do I talk to them about this? How do, and I'm like, model the behavior, you know, make sure you're taking care of yourself, like live the life that you want to put on display and make sure they know that you're open to talking, but you don't necessarily have to confront them every time you see them. Like, Control yourself and control what you can do. If you ever feel you need to say something for yourself, make sure you're saying it for yourself. It's a good way of putting it, man. Yeah, like I said, I, you know, it's it's it sometimes it's easier on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know, like oh, why can't you do this? Or you know, but like I said, you don't know if that person's in that spot to actually take that plunge. Oh yeah, you know. Uh, I don't want to tie you up any longer, but this has been great, man. Um, yes, and by the way, you have a great voice. I remember when you said that earlier about your podcast, but, uh, what is your advice for people? Biggest advice that I always give is realize that you're never going to have all the answers. So just get started. If you have something you need to do, if you, if, if you're someone out there that needs to, that knows that you need to make a change to your health, whether it's losing weight or taking care of something, start now. Don't wait till you have all the answers because you never are going to have them all. Nothing is ever going to be perfect. You can course correct. You can try, you can try something for 30 days and decide that it doesn't work for you and try something else. Like realize that day one doesn't define day 1000. Like just, but if you don't have a day one, you don't ever get to day 1000. I like that. Um, Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you about your plans and stuff? Definitely. So Instagram is my primary social space and that's at Gourmet Goes Keto. Uh, as you mentioned be- several times, I have the podcast, The Fat Guy Forum. You can find that on every podcast platform. You can email the show at thefatguyforum at gmail.com. And if you're interested in coaching or even just reading the blogs that I've been writing that 
Some are about keto focused topics. A lot of them more are about mindset and mindfulness. Uh, you can find those and my programs at theketoroad.com. Um, that's a good spot to keep up with all that. Gotcha. And by the way, I love the logo you have for your podcast. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> it's great. It's like, it's, so it's him, Tony, but like it's him with a belly and the belly is like hanging over like the, mm-hmm. the circle part. I was like, this is looking great. <laughs> like, I worked with a fiber artist on that. Okay, that's one of the things that was in place a year before I actually recorded an episode of the podcast. I had a logo before I had a podcast. Um, and I worked for weeks with this guy. Like we struggled, we struggled, but he eventually, I love it. Like it's, it, it'll, it, I, it cracks me up every time I see it. I've yeah. got keychains with it on it. I've got um, coasters, stickers. All no, you still merch? Um, I don't, I should. But I don't. I just give stuff away to people every so often. Okay. Well, that's good promotion, though, too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I do have a Patreon, though. So if you listen to the podcast and you like it, you can always join the Patreon. I'm going to go back and listen to your, uh, what did you say? It was a 540 episode? Yeah, I actually just re- I, I remastered it, digitally remastered it, because the sound was awful, to be honest with you, if you go back and listen to the original version. Um, I took my first two episodes, which are my 540 pound life and why I chose keto um, and kind of edited those together into one longer episode and released that it's somewhere in the one thirties. So it was recent. So is your podcast predominantly with guests or do you do it by yourself sometimes? Um, It is predominantly with guests. I've done probably four or five solo episodes. That's a, it's man, that's a beast thing doing like a podcast by yourself, man. Yeah, like, you I try to do it one time. You didn't like it. it. No. I, I thought yeah. I enjoyed doing it by myself. Well, you love hearing yourself talk. <laughs> well, so. not just that, but like it was, I, I thought I did really well in it. Yeah, I, I enjoy it and people like it, but I'm just always like, uh, again, it goes back to that voice thing. And then I'm like, am I even, should I still be talking? Like, I, I want to feel like I want to have more to talk about. And yeah. I just love, I love being able to give people a chance to tell their story. One of the things I started doing recently is bringing back guests to circle back, you know, because it's, it's two years out. You know, like I had one guest, um, his name is is Chance. He's Fat Chance Trying on Instagram. And when he started, he was 600 pounds and he's lost over 300 pounds now. Wow. But he was only like 100 or so, oh, 100, 150 or so pounds into his journey when I had him on the podcast the first time. So I had him come back and we talked about body dysmorphia being a bitch, like what it's really like to go from 600 pounds to under 300 pounds and still see 600 pounds in the mirror. Like we had a really, really awesome discussion about that. Um, I've brought, I've brought back. I've had guests that have gone on to become coaches themselves. So we talked about what it's like to go from being a fat guy to being a coach, helping people and how you make that decision. And, you know, we just, and I even had a, a friend of mine who's a comedian and we did um, a dive into who we think the funniest fat guys are, like just for, <laughs> for, for shits and giggles. That's legit. What, who did you choose? Like uh, all time or we, just living currently? Uh, we, uh, we, it was living and dead, you know, okay. it was whatever we kind of like did our, our, and, and for me, you know, he had, his were a little more stand-up comic focused. I was more on the movie side of things. I think my number one was probably John Candy. Me too. That's, um, yeah, for sure. I do this. I do this thing at the end of my podcast. I call the Fat Guy Five. I ask the same five questions all the time, and the first question I always ask is, "Living or dead? Who's your favorite fat guy?" Fifty hmm. percent of the forty-eight. You know, forty-eight percent of the time it's John. It's John Candy. Forty-eight percent of the time it's Chris Farley, and then what's left there? Four percent. Four percent of the time, it's some other random fat guy. Like, and <laughs> I always, it, oh, sorry. And for me, I have so many other answers, and I'm like, y'all, you just don't know your fat guys. Like, come on. Uh, the the 
the he's a stand-up comic. He's really yep. the big dude. I think he was Latino. Um, Gabriel Iglesias. Yeah, he's funny. <laughs> yeah, he's oh, funny, yeah. dude. <laughs> I've seen him live. He's hilarious. Yeah, fluffy. That's what he goes by. Yeah. Well, hey, we really appreciate you taking time today, man. Um, Definitely, guys. It was it was an awesome discussion. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. All right, we love you lots. Bye. Bye.